Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Today we're going to be reviewing the ASU game over UNLV, where ASU won 37 to 10 at Sun Devil Stadium on Saturday. ASU now go to 2 and 0 on the season, and they had a sloppy beginning of the game, but turned into a dominant performance in the second half by the defense. And the offense had a couple things click in the second half as well. Maybe not as great as the defense, but we'll start off with the offense. Jaden Daniels uh, rushing. He had 13 attempts, which was considered by a lot of the coaches a little bit too many attempts. He had 125 yards, which was a career high. And he's now a fourth all-time by any ASU quarterback. Carson, what did you see from Jaden Daniels on the day in terms of both his passing and rushing? Well, I think that obviously you saw his outstanding dynamism as that rusher, primarily on off-schedule scrambles and whatnot, not a lot of designed run plays. But I think you touched on the key point, which is that the pretty much unanimous sentiment among the coaching staff, primarily Zach Hill and Herm Edwards being the guys who expressed this, was that that was an excessive amount of attempts on the ground for him, which leads to an excessive amount of hits and obviously the further potential for injury. And What Jaden said was that basically in a matchup like this, he felt that there was no player on UNLV's defense who could check him in space, who could contain him there. And maybe that's true because again, he did deliver that dominant performance on the ground. But I think the reason that this is such a point of emphasis from Hill and from Herm Edwards is that that's not the most sustainable thing. And when you go up against a stouter defense like a BYU or a bunch of these Pac-12 defenses, maybe you're not able to just easily leak out for 10 yards consistently on every single run. And the better opportunity is to either hang in the pocket for a little bit longer, or when you are outside the pocket to keep those eyes downfield, to scan your options and to deliver a throw there. So I think that he was very impressive on the ground, but probably as the coaches said, relied on a little bit too much. And then through the air, I think that this was a game in which ASU didn't really get it going in the first half had the one really nice ball to LV Bunkley Shelton for that 33-yard touchdown in the second half. But at the end of the day, that's a pretty much wide-open receiver. Had a rough interception to open this game up effectively to Johnny Wilson in the end zone on what just seemed to be a miscommunication. So I think that although Daniels did have this great game on the ground, the passing game remains a primary concern for ASU, and this game didn't really do anything to change that. I'm also joined by reporter Jacob Rudner. Jacob, what were your thoughts on Jaden Daniels on the day? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that Jaden, as as, he, as Carson, excuse me, as Carson, you know, brought up, he was very impressive on the ground, and we've known for a long time that he's had the ability to do that. So it didn't exactly come as a surprise that he was able to pick apart, uh, you know, a very lowly opponent in, in that regard. Uh, ASU definitely has some room to grow. Uh, I would say a considerable amount of room to grow in its passing game. Uh, Herm Edwards specifically called it a B minus passing performance in his postgame press conference. And I thought that was particularly interesting because uh, Edwards has not over the last several years been one to heavily criticize, uh, you know, parts of his team's game, especially immediately in postgame press conference scenarios. And the fact that he was pretty unimpressed with how ASU looked in its passing and, and said several times it was at best a B-minus performance, I think says a lot. Um, I, I, it's definitely an area where the team is going to have to improve moving forward. And I think that we saw against UNLV just how lacking it really is, despite there being two touchdown passes. LB Bunkley-Shelton had a nice play uh, connection with Jaden Daniels. But still, I think, you know, like Herm Edwards pointed out right away, it was not enough uh, for especially a third-year star quarterback. 
Okay, we're also joined by site publisher Chris Cartman. Chris, what are your thoughts on Jaden Daniels on the deck? Well, you look at his stats and they're not bad. 20 of 29. People will remember that there was back-to-back drops in there. Uh, I think it was LV Bunkley Shelton and then Rashad White. Uh, there was also a drop by Andre Johnson. Uh, where the ball was like right on him and he appeared to not be looking for it. So you you have at least three balls there that really very easily should have been caught. Daniels probably would have been over 80% on the day if everybody else kind of did their job. Um, Zach Hill came out right from the get-go in in that game. Uh, ASU went five wide. You guys will recall his first completion was – uh, first play of the game, rookie Pearsall, 12-yard catch. Ben Daniels scrambled for a big gain. Uh, then they brought in Rashad White. He ran twice. Uh, Daniels scrambled again. Um, there was another completion, and then there was an interception. That, that particular ball uh, was a mistake by Daniels. It was a first and 11, first and 10, pardon me, at the 11. Um, what happened is the cornerback was playing inside leverage, pre-snap but then he jumped outside right at the snap to force Johnny Wilson inside of him on a fade ball uh, that really seemed to be predetermined by Daniels he knew he was going to throw that on that play and Wilson uh, did not get through the corner to where he could go to get to where the ball was intended Um, partly I think it was Daniels not either recognizing that at the line of scrimmage or seeing it and adjusting where he located the football. Uh, if he was going to even throw it at all, which he really probably shouldn't have. And that's a mistake by the quarterback. Um, you still have to sort of take a glance over there, make sure that the route is going the way that you had uh, pictured it, because you can't risk throwing an interception on first down after a nice drive. Um, overall, I would say that he pretty clearly has a tendency to become a runner a scrambler too quickly at times um, situations that really call for him uh, trying, trying to hold out another second or two to go through progressions. And then even when he does sort of bleed out of the pocket, one of the things I, I, I really loved about his game coming out of high school was his ability to sort of stop on a dime while having his eyes downfield to deliver passes while on the move. And that hasn't been, um, observed really uh, as much while he's been at ASU. I think he's converted too quickly to being a runner only or, or primarily. I asked Zach Hill about that um, following today's press conference on Tuesday uh, or during the press conference, I should say. And uh, Hill was pretty candid about that, saying that he does want Daniels to keep his eyes downfield longer. Uh, and that's even when you get some of the big opportunities that develop with post routes, something that I also asked Buckley Shelton about, given his familiarity with Daniels, as they have uh, played with each other for several years now, going back to their seven-on-seven days. So um, certainly this is one of the areas that requires the most focus and attention in ASU's uh, overall uh, capability uh, and its, its hopes for the season. And it's interesting you bring that up because there was talks after the game from uh, Herm Edwards and, and some from Zach Hill about just whether it's on Jaden Daniels or the wide receivers. And there was talks from Herm Edwards about 
Jane Daniels not really knowing what the wide receivers are doing and they're being not, maybe not like they've only played about six games with each other. Does he know what they're doing? So the question I kind of have, we even heard back in spring is they're wondering who that guy is going to be the number one receiver. They kind of have a lot of guys together and we haven't quite figured out who the guy is that Jane Daniels is going to be able to throw to in that number one wide receiver. So is there hope that it's going to turn into some players going to step up and be that guy, or is it going to be something more of a committee Carson? To me, it seems pretty unlikely that there is a clear-cut number one star-level guy out of that group, and I don't think that there needs to be necessarily because you have guys who can offer different things. You have the consistency of an LV Bunkley Sheldon out of the slot. You have Ricky Pearsall who can fill that role at a high level too but also has a little bit more big play ability maybe as we've seen with him not just through the air but on the ground as well with some creative actions there and who really reportedly, according to him and Jaden Daniels, really established their connection over the offseason. Then you have the big Johnny Wilson at 6'7 with his athleticism and maybe even introducing a guy like Elijah Badger into the mix with the big playability of Andre Johnson. There's a bunch of guys who can fill specific roles and who can fill gaps in this offense, and so I think that they can do it by committee, and they really just have to at this point. So I don't know if this game was particularly awful from the receivers. I think that the drops stand out from LV and from Rashad, as Chris mentioned earlier, but I don't know that that's the limiting factor. I think that the limiting factor is maybe partly that, but also as we talked about Jaden's hesitancy to throw the ball and desire to run more. And Zach Hill also came up right out today and said that he felt that the couple sacks that Jaden did take against UNLV were on him and they were not on the offensive line. So I don't think that there's a clear-cut number one receiver in this group. I don't know that there needs to be. They just have to be strong and consistent as a group, and they're going to be tested in that respect more and more as the season goes on and the quality of the competition gets higher, and we'll see how they respond to that challenge. Can I just add to that? Yeah, go that. Yeah, because the I think you're hitting on something that's important, Carson, which is to say that even Herm Edwards has been – mentioning that they are looking for someone to step up and be that number one guy. And he called back to what Nikhil Harry was, what Brandon Ayuk was. And I, I, I almost think that's sort of a fool's errand with this team. Um, it's not like there's somebody who just all of a sudden is magically going to be capable of getting a dozen targets in the game. It's not going to happen. Um, you know, Unless there's just some fluky situation where um, a, a, a certain matchup or opportunity or a hot hand develops. But for the most part, it's going to have to be a by-committee approach. This is why we all struggled to figure out before the season who would lead ASU in targets, receptions, touchdowns, yardage. And really, there was like several options. And the most prominent options that we all discussed are the guys making the the most catches to this point in the season, right? It's pretty much Wilson, Pearsall, Bunkley, Shelton. We all expected that. Uh, maybe, maybe you know, that we thought that uh, a Brian Thompson or an Andre Johnson uh, might might make a few more catches. But there's nothing that really has been surprising uh, in any way about this receiver group based upon what we saw in the preseason or even prior to that. Jacob, what are your thoughts on this wide receiver group in terms of as one or by committee? 
I, I mean, honestly, I, I, there's not much more I could add. I really do agree with what Carson and, and Chris said. Chris said something in particular that I thought was, was closest to what I was going to say, and that is that there was a reason we all struggled so much to pick who was going to be, you know, leading each category. And so I'm, I'm not even going to add much more than that. I, I agree with what both of them said. And one thing that was pretty errant or pretty stood out to me, I should say, within the stats of this game was that in terms of receptions, Rashad White was a player that had the most receptions out of anyone, which I thought was interesting considering he, of course, isn't a wide receiver. But we'll go over to the rushing attack, which was once again very strong in this game. Rashad White had more attempts and more touchdowns, but Daniel Nagata had a touchdown himself and had a better average per carry. Carson, what did you think about the rushing attack from ASU? Well, I think that it was really what you've come to expect for the most part, and maybe even not all that remarkable by the standards that they have established. But I thought that probably the bright spot in this game was Nagata having that super efficient game on the ground. Because if you look back at last year, he got a lot of carries in the two games that he did play, but he wasn't uber efficient, averaged 4.2 yards a carry, I believe. And then in this opener, against Southern Utah, led the team in carries just because he became sort of the bell cow back as that game became less competitive as it progressed, but he had just 11 carries for 37 yards. So for him to have this kind of dynamic, super efficient performance, even though it's not on huge volume, I just think that's an affirmation of the talent and the depth of this running back room. And it's something that bodes really well for the ultimate success and potential of this team, because if there is another instance where you go down a guy where Chip Trainum possibly gets hurt again or Rashad White gets hurt again or what have you, Nagata certainly helped his case in this game to prove that he can be that kind of certainly a member of a dual threat and maybe even a lead back in situations if need be. So that to me was the biggest takeaway, but we know ASU's run game is very strong. It always is. And this week, I don't think was really different from that. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I would also just say that I was... I was really impressed by the depth of ASU's running back room. And we've talked about it in several podcasts, just the fact that it exists. And I think that it was abundantly clear uh, against UNLV for the reasons Carson outlined. I would also say though, that, you know, we've talked about how Jaden Daniels needs to be uh, a, a little bit more aware of what's going on downfield in the situations that he chooses to scramble in, but he was thoroughly impressive once he passed the line of scrimmage. Uh, just his ability to evade defenders, to turn on the jets and to, you know, to break up the field is, is so, so impressive. And after last game with 122 rushing yards, Daniels actually leads Arizona state in total rushing yards right now. And, you know, that just for the quarterback to be doing that with a trio of running backs who are extremely talented and everybody knows that it just, to me, it speaks volumes about just how potent he is with his legs. So you know, to go back a little bit in our podcast, does he need to be more aware of what's happening on the field, down the field with his receivers? Of course, and that needs to improve. But when he does choose to use his legs, he's been doing so extremely successfully, and it was impressive against UNLV. And what I would just say here is ASU's 290 rushing yards were uh, quite deceptive against UNLV right? Because of Daniels having 125 of those rushing yards and Rashad White, a relatively modest for him, 90 yards on 22 attempts for a 4.1 yard per carry average. Um, I think Ngata's production 
not really surprising. Uh, we knew that he's one of the more improved guys in, in uh, on the team, maybe uh, from last year to this year. Um, but uh, do you really want Daniels to be running that much and putting himself at risk against a UNLV or a Southern Utah? There were several tackles that were, you know, shoestring, where, you know, he's falling a little bit awkward. You guys will remember that uh, he was thrown awkwardly out of bounds uh, on ASU sideline on a penalty already this season that you know, very oftentimes a guy gets hurt. The, the exposure, the value of what he's getting via the run game and the scrambling capability it may not be worth the risk of what he's subjecting himself to given the level of the opponent and also what he's giving up in terms of forcing himself to try to find receivers, even who maybe initially appear covered or working his way to get to a third and fourth progression um, in a way that uh, makes him more comfortable subsequently doing that. Okay. And then also buy time for yourself to allow guys to become uh, open as receivers rather than going from, I'm a passer. No, I'm a runner. Um, but I, it's so deceiving. ASU had 290 rushing yards again and is leading the Pac-12 by more than 40 rushing yards already through two games over Oregon and UCLA and also is second in yards per carry in the Pac-12, um, largely on the back of what Daniels has done uh, through the first two games. But again, it's, it's a balancing act, and you got to be careful. And I think that we're going to learn a lot more about this team in terms of its offensive balancing and uh, Daniels' readiness to, to, uh, to help ASU move the football and win even from the pocket against BYU. Yeah, and, and we talk, we've talked a lot about Jaden Daniels in terms of leaving the pocket. And a lot of that sometimes comes down to the offensive line. In the first game, the offensive line played very well, but Jaden Daniels still at times left the pocket and decided to run outside of it. What did you think about their, the offensive line's performance in the game against UNLV, Carson? Well, I thought it was a step down from the opener. But I was honestly a bit surprised today to Zach Hill's evaluation and Ben Scott's evaluation because both of them were pretty positive and said that they felt that the offensive line has really been getting their job done. And again, as I said a little bit earlier, Zach Hill attributed some of that pressure more to Jaden Daniels and his decision-making to leave the pocket and whatnot than the offensive line itself. But I think that clearly... This is a strong group, and we also got to see Asaya Glass in there just for a moment, which I thought was telling because it seems that he is now that sixth lineman, that top backup, which we didn't know previously, but I think that the depth there is uh, solid, and I just think it's a really pretty darn good overall unit, but I didn't think that this was necessarily their best game. Yeah, it... it step down from the their performance against Southern Utah. Um, I, I think that the biggest thing that has to be kept an eye on in addition to 
there may have been a, a shakeup of the depth chart, like Carson mentioned, with Isaiah Glass potentially being that sixth lineman. Uh, I, I think it's that the, the pressure that gets off the interior of the line. Henry Haddis uh, struggled on several plays uh, against UNLV. And I think that that's particularly of concern if you're Arizona State because UNLV's defensive line over the last several years has not been all that potent. And it seemed to find some success, particularly against Haddis, uh, in this game. BYU has a, uh, an, a defensive lineman whose name is escaping me, and that could be a challenge moving forward, so at least immediately. And I think that that concern, at least in my opinion, kind of became relevant against UNLV. So that would be the biggest thing to watch moving forward. But, you know, like Carson mentioned, I think that the, the, the team was pretty satisfied with their performance against UNLV. Uh, I know that uh, Kellen Deesh and Ben Scott were the first and fourth rated overall defense, uh, offensive tackles uh, by Pro Football Focus after last week. So, you know, there are other people who think that they had a very good performance. I think Donovan West was the sixth or seventh rated center, according to Pro Football Focus. So, you know, the grades were pretty solid. I think it was an okay performance with some mistakes. Yeah, the, the, the tackles were very good. Kellen Deesh had an excellent game, easily the, the highest-rated uh, tackle in the Pac-12 by PFF. Ben Scott also played really well. I thought the interior linemen were not nearly as good as they were against Southern Utah. And that's um, an, an issue both on pass and run uh, for, for, for the team. When Jaden Daniels is feeling pressure in his face because um, – a Haddis gives up a guy or, or Henderson gives up a guy or even Donovan uh, uh, West gives up a guy uh, that then sort of exacerbates a tendency that he has to want to scramble or evade the pocket sense set and maybe even sense it when it's not happening. Um, and then also there were several times when uh, there was a, a defensive lineman right at Rashad White as soon as he had the ball in his hands, it resulted in several negative yard yardage plays. In fact, the, the when um, when West went out of the game for what seemed to be cramping, uh, Jared Bell played center and he had a assignment error almost immediately that led to one of those plays that I'm talking about. So the they were actually quite good in the opener. The interior offensive lineman phrase, you're not as good in this game. Very good at the edge. I think they need to kind of put it all together um, going on the road against BYU. And, and by the way, when you get that, that crowd noise on the road, you can be a little bit slower keying the snap, uh, or you can have more of a tendency to, to, to false start and have other sort of procedural types of issues. So we'll have to watch that as well. The offense definitely has some questions that need to be answered for the BYU game. Now we'll head over to the defense, which after two, the first two drives of the game from UNLV were long drives where UNLV scored their field goal and their touchdown. But after that, the defense turned it up a notch and were nothing short of dominant. They only gave up 67 total passing yards to give up 88 total rushing yards. One of the biggest questions coming into the game was the rushing defense and how they deal with Charles Williams. So possibly the most impressive part of the defense was only giving 35 yards to Charles Williams on 13 attempts. Carson, what did you see from the rush defense from ASU? 
Well, I think that they excelled in that respect, containing Williams. And I thought that they tackled really well. And he, in my recollection, didn't get to that third level of the defense a single time. So I thought that that was a strong performance. The issue to me with ASU's run defense was uh, their efforts to contain Doug Brumfield, the athletic UNLV quarterback who went for 43 yards on eight rushes and a touchdown on the day. And that is going to be crucially important in ASU's matchup this week against BYU, their ability to, to contain a very athletic running quarterback in Jaron Hall. And really twice within the next three weeks, because you go on the road to UCLA and face Dorian Thompson Robinson, that's a guy who last year also really showed his ability to make plays with his feet. So although they made progress probably as far as stopping the run traditionally, that ability to contain athletic quarterbacks and some of the concerns that they flashed this past week against UNLV, those aren't going away immediately and those are going to remain relevant. And I thought that there were a couple spots in which guys just crashed down too hard on, let's say out of an option on Williams and just a little bit of a lack of discipline there, which you don't normally expect to see from a defense as experienced as ASU's this year, but that we have maybe seen on a couple too many occasions over these first couple weeks. Although obviously, again, they were really good against Williams and the second half all around was just unbelievable from them. But the ability to contain those running quarterbacks may be very important over these next couple of weeks. And it's not an area in which ASU was all that strong against UNLV. Yeah, I think that the review of ASU's defensive line really has to be calibrated considering the situation that it was facing. In the UNLV game, they did not have Omar Norman Lott for an undisclosed reason, and that kind of shook things up. Shannon Foreman started at three tech, and pretty quickly in the game, uh, he was rotated out for TJ Pesafea, and Pesafea is typically DJ Davidson's uh, backup. So Davidson had to play a lot of snaps against UNLV. Pesafea, who actually played pretty well, was, was out of the position that he, we typically see him practice in. And ASU's depth was kind of interesting. BJ Green got a lot of time, uh, got a lot of reps in this game, uh, probably a lot more than I think we'll see from him moving forward, even though I do think he's quite effective and got another half sack. Um, but ASU had some solid performers again. Michael Matus, number two uh, graded edge rusher by PFF. Trevez Moore, number four, uh, DJ Davidson, number five, among interior linemen in the Pac-12, all of those by Pro Football Focus. So, you know, I thought that they were actually pretty good. Carson mentioned that they, they held Charles Williams to a pretty poor game, in my opinion. Uh, Brumfield looked good early, but was contained later. So, you know, given what the situation that they were in in that game, I thought that it was a pretty solid performance. And this, it's a group that just knows how to get pressure. And even with a four-man rush has been capable of doing that. So uh, good performance, in my opinion. Yeah, UNLV's traditional run game was not successful whatsoever. Um, Charles Williams' longest carry was six yards, going back to what Carson was saying. Uh, Javon Wilson, who was the younger brother, a former ASU tight end slash defensive end slash linebacker, Slash double backer. Yeah, JJ Wilson um, it had uh, 20 yards on six carries for a long, a long of 13. So when you the running backs of UNLV, their longest carry is 13 yards. That's a really good performance. The problem, as Carson said, was early on, 
you had ASU's defensive ends and, and, and even at times their linebackers and, and Darian Butler comes to mind on one play crashing down so aggressively at the mesh point on read options that Brunfeld was seeing this and he was pulling the ball out of that mesh and scampering around the edge where there was nobody and he got a few big gainers. In fact, 30 of his uh, 43 net rushing yards came on the team's first drive alone, which was a 16-play drive. If not for, for those uh, moments of overzealousness by ASU's defensive players, I don't think that even happens uh, because, and I know we'll talk about this in a bit, but there really wasn't a lot there for UNLV in the passing game whatsoever, right? So if they're bottling up traditional runs, they're containing Brumfeld and forcing him to be a pocket passer, that's a recipe for failure against the ASU defense. And after UNLV had 145 net yards in its first two drives, um, the rest of the game, it didn't even do anything. It had seven three and outs, one first down. The rest of the game uh, um, had uh, only crossed, didn't even cross its own 40-yard line in the whole second half. So that's a complete dominant shutdown performance by ASU's defense. But one of the things I said in my 10 takeaways, it's like going to a nice restaurant and you're having a seven course meal and the first two courses are not good and they leave bad taste in your mouth. It sort of ruins what are the next five really good courses. And you're not going to appreciate that the way that you otherwise would have, even if the, the first couple of courses were decent. That's basically what happened in this game. It just, it was a, Third, to score 30 unanswered points and thoroughly dominate UNLV. Um, it was the fewest total yards that ASU has given up in a game since 2009. Okay. So they dominated. It's just the first quarter in particular, and then to some degree in the second quarter, um, there were, you know, there, there were too many mistakes and miscues and assignment issues on both sides of the ball, but particularly with trying to corral Brumfeld. And talking about like on that subject of the defense playing on really just changing it to a different level, Carson, do you think the team can play at that level for a whole game? Because that's something that the coaches talked about. And when you go against teams of a higher caliber than UNLV, that's going to be something they need to do in order to actually shut teams down to a similar way that they did against UNLV. But is it possible for the team to play that well for a whole game? I think it's possible. I think that a lot of things are possible for this ASU team because the talent, the experience, is all there. The consistency has been what is lacking though. And I think that Chris put it beautifully with that analogy. And that's why he's the head honcho. Cause that's just, that's good stuff right there. But those first two possessions were inexcusably bad to allow a 16 play 70 yard field goal drive. And then a 10 play 75 yard touchdown drive to allow three third and long conversions on that first series that was just downright bad defense from ASU to start the game. And then after that, after that, they kick in the gear and they were nearly perfect. But it's tough to come away from that performance and say that you only have positive takeaways because of how bad the start was. But to answer your question, yes, there is a world in which they can do that because you have one of the most talented secondaries in the country, a really gifted linebacking core, 
We've seen the defensive line produce with their depth, with their ability to rush the passer. And so if all those pieces come together in one game for four quarters, you can do some remarkable things, but we haven't seen it yet. And we're not exactly talking about the stiffest competition here. So if they are to do it, they have to take their level up considerably. And again, they just have to reach a level of discipline and play to play effectiveness that we have not seen out of this defense yet. And, and just to kind of zero in on one position group in particular to expand on Carson's point, which was very well said. Uh, I, I think that ASU's safeties and Chris, you might disagree with me or think that there's another group that needs more improvement, but I think ASU safeties need to take it a couple steps up from what we've seen in the first two games. Uh, you know, Evan Fields and DeAndre Pierce came into this season with expectations to be around or a part of the all-conference teams by the end of the season. And I think that that's totally a possibility for both of those players. They haven't looked that like that caliber, at least in my opinion, thus far. And I think that they are a huge key to being able to accomplish, Ethan, what you asked about, and Carson, what you outlined. And once they're able to do that, that could bump ASU's defensive performance up even another notch. So for me personally, I, I would agree with everything Carson said, and the unit I'm looking at in particular are, are those safeties. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm not saying that they, the safeties have played especially well. I think Evan Fields has had some coverage issues um, as that, that stopgap safety playing uh, really deep alignment sometimes. But if you go back to the first drive, it was Mason Williams who had a very good first game against Southern Utah who gave up two third down conversions. I think it was a third and eight and a third and five in man coverage where he was playing off. And he really gave up too much cushion on his assignment on both of those conversions. Uh, UNLV's only had four third down conversions in the entire game. Three of them came on this drive, two of them were Mason Williams uh, getting beaten. And then later we saw uh, ASU bring in Jordan Clark. Uh, he moved into the, the slot, into nickel looks. They had Chase Lucas, Jack Jones. You know, the, Demarcus Davis is, is back practicing this week. He hasn't played the first two weeks. I think they really kind of missed him. Uh, Chase Lucas had two pass breakups. Jones, two pass breakups. They were two of the top three graded corners in the Pac-12 by PFF. Um, so they're doing what they're supposed to do. DeAndre Pierce missed, I think, an interception opportunity when, uh, I guess it was Kyle Soley smashed Broomfield um, as he delivered the ball. So that that was, you know, a, a something that um, they probably wish they would have had that. But I, I, I would say more so it's been a few little cornerback mistakes, especially early on in a couple of these games that uh, had they gone the other way, it would have been just an utter annihilation by ASU's defense of UNLV. And now we've kind of discussed defense and offense. Both of them have some questions going into BYU that may or may not be answered. We'll move on to special teams. DJ Taylor has been electric so far in his time this season returning punts and kicks against UNLV he didn't quite get as many opportunities as he probably would have wanted to whether it was squib kicks or punts that were going out of bounds are we going to continue to see this from teams kicking away from DJ Taylor and if we do or we do not what can we expect from him for the rest of the season Carson I think it's very telling that we saw this in week two and obviously 
he put this on film last year and he put it on film in week one when he was the special teams player of the week in the Pac-12. But I do expect this to continue, Ethan. And I think that what's interesting is on our season preview podcast, we each went around and laid out our top five offensive players on ASU's roster and our top five defensive players. And DJ Taylor was not included among that group, obviously. But I do think if you are regarding each position as an equal in this conversation, that he has a case for the best player on ASU's team. So he is a guy who every time that he catches the ball, even though he said uh, a couple of weeks ago that he wasn't fully comfortable with catching the ball off punt returns yet, that it was a little bit weird for him, not as natural as being a kick returner. Every single play, he has that dynamic potential. He is just a guy who is highly elusive, who reads the field incredibly well, who has that high level speed. And I think that teams would be wise to kick away from him as much as possible. Now, I don't know how many times we're going to see teams attempt two squib kicks because I think that what's more likely is that if there's an up man and ASU has two guys back, then they go for that guy to see just outright squib kicks to me was a little bit surprising, a little bit extreme maybe, but it ended up not really hurting UNLV. And again, it takes away that big play potential. So I think that DJ Taylor has shown all the damage that he can do this year and last year. And it's going to be pretty hard for him to get to that five kick return touchdown mark that he laid out as a goal before the season. If nobody's going to kick him the ball. I mean, personally, Carson, you, you described the squib kicks as a little bit surprising. And I, I do think that they are somewhat of a surprise, but I honestly think that teams that are more defensively effective are going to be simply okay with putting the ball in a not DJ Taylor's hands and letting ASU take over at its 35-yard line, maybe the 40-yard line. And you are okay with that if you're an opposing defensive coordinator or an opposing special teams coordinator. And basically you're saying, we're going to do this until ASU proves offensively that it's going to burn us for it. I think that DJ Taylor has the potential to run a ball back on kick and punt return pretty much every time. We have seen... Several, we saw several punt returns against UNLV. Uh, we saw the kick returns and a punt return against uh, Southern Utah. And I think every single time, at least what went through my head, is this guy is going to bring it back. He, he, the way that he evades oncoming you know, defenders and the way that he sets up angles on his returns is just, I mean, it's, it's perfect pretty much every time. And it creates space for him for you know, returns that are at minimum typically between 10 and 15 yards on punts and, you know, in the 20 to 35 range on kick returns. So, you know, again, if I'm an opposing team, sure, put it in somebody else's hands. I, I would not want him touching the ball and I would do it through squid kicks if that's what I felt was the best way to do it. There's not a lot of guys who change the game without even getting the ball in their hands, right? That's what Taylor brings to the fold. Because opponents are going to be willing to sacrifice field position, average starting drive, just because of his presence if they can't kick the ball out of the end zone, which UNLV clearly couldn't do. And to Carson's point, I think that UNLV was so afraid about trying to kick it really in the corner uh, to where Taylor wouldn't come up and catch it anyways, calling off Tommy Hill or whoever was back there without kicking the ball out of bounds, that that was sort of the dilemma that they faced. You know, do we kick a, try to kick a high one 
that's sort of in the corner, but maybe go out of bounds and they get the ball to 35. Or maybe uh, Taylor just comes up and catches it at the 10-yard line or something like that. Uh, th- these are the these are what are presented as the, the, the dilemmas for opposing coordinators in trying to piece together a game plan for this guy. He's just, I agree, he's that good uh, right now. Um, and yeah, it probably means he won't have the type of production that he envisioned because he might not get as many opportunities. Although I will say that on some of those punt returns, you, you thought he was you know, one, one guy away from breaking it. Um, the other thing we should mention about special teams, of course, is Eddie Chaplitsky, uh, again, for a second week in a row, showed that he could pin opponents inside the 20. Uh, first kick against Southern Utah, down at the one. He had one uh, down at the 11 and the other down at the seven. Okay. I don't think that Michael Turk, for as good as he was at flipping the field, was particularly impressive at precision punting on short field situations. And that is something that we are already seeing a freshman do at an extremely high level. Plus, he, I think, has a pretty good leg as well. So the punting is not looking like it's going to be a drop-off here. And then we saw, of course, Christian Zendejas kick ASU's lone field goal, handle PAT duties. He doesn't have that uh, bigger leg that a Logan Tyler or maybe some other guys have. But Herm Edwards has said pretty clearly when ASU gets plus 30, they want somebody who's reliable and they believe that Zendejas has that capability. Definitely. And before we, we wrap this one up, we'll talk quickly about injuries. Based off of what you observed at practice on Tuesday, what do we know about any injury updates, Chris, and about players maybe that got injured in this UNLV game or just maybe are returning for the game against BYU? Yeah, so several positive developments for ASU. Tamarcus Davis mentioned that earlier. He's back practicing in full. I think he, there's a good chance that he plays against BYU, and that means that uh, there's not as much of a need for, for Mason Williams uh, or Jordan Clark. Uh, Omar Norman Lott didn't practice uh, or play last week against uh, UNLV. He's back on the field, so it looks like he'll be a go for BYU. That gives him a second three-technique option. Maybe that allows for T.J. Pesafea to slide over and play some nose behind T.J. Davidson so that Davidson doesn't need to play quite as many reps, right? I think that's a factor. We did not see Evan Fields on defense at the outset of the practice. Now, I'm not sure what the reason is for that. They had Kiwan Markham working with the first team at that position. That's something that we're going to monitor and catch our listeners up on the premium podcast on Thursday night. Um, offensively, uh, the, the running backs, you had Damonte train on back at practice after not playing against UNLV with the ankle injury, Daniel Nagata dislocated his thumb, but what worked cast and practice in a green Jersey. Um, so it looks like the running back position is getting back to health a little bit. Uh, we did not see Donovan West at, uh, at center. Now I, he had cramping against the UNLV, left the game for a while. I heard that it isn't anything serious and he's supposed to play on Saturday, but we'll continue to monitor that throughout the week because that would be a big fact factor if uh, they had to go with Jarrett Bell at center as a replacement, perhaps. Uh, and Brian Thompson is the, the injury from the UNLV game, a hamstring that I think is the most uh, potential to leave 
a player out of the lineup against BYU. Uh, Elijah Badger didn't practice the first uh, couple weeks of the season, hasn't played in a game yet as a Sun Devil, sat out last year due to academics. They're working him back in the mix, and they could really use him at the X position behind Andre Johnson if Thompson doesn't play, and even if he did, uh, but not sure if he's going to be ready for that type of uh, ramp up. Uh, to playing this week against BYU. So a bunch of stuff that we're still watching and we'll get back to you on uh, the Thursday podcast. As he said, we'll continue to update uh, you on those injuries as well as leading up to the BYU game on Saturday in Provo, Utah. But that's it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. ASU won 37 to 10 against UNLV. If you'd like a more series by series and often play-by-play analysis of the game, Chris put up and upon further review on the board and for a more thematic analysis, Chris wrote 10 takeaways, which is up on the site right now as well. I'm Ethan Ryder for Carson Breber, Christopher, or for Carson Breber, Chris Cartman, and Jacob Rudner. We'll see you guys next time.